This is a conversation with Joey Ayoub, a Lebanese-Palestinian writer, researcher, and academic on Israel and Palestine. We discuss the current ethnic cleansing and carceral violence happening to Palestine, how this is part of a larger campaign of extermination and cruelty from the Israeli state, how this violence and hatred is generated within Israel through its education system, its mass media, and its politics, and if international solidarity for Palestine can pressure Israel to stop its current campaign of violence and extermination, and perhaps begin to build a campaign to finally free Palestine and allow it to define its own narrative outside of Israel entirely. We'll also discuss why it's important for all of us to stand with Palestine at this moment. There are many more and deeper connections to issues like feminism, anarchism, and abolitionism than one might think, and Joey expertly and beautifully explains why Palestinian freedom may mean freedom for us all. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog. We've interviewed many brilliant speakers. I highly recommend our conversation with Shahram Khosravi on borders and migrants. And you can go to our website, asiaarttours.com, for print interviews on a variety of global subjects. Right now, we are highlighting the plight of imprisoned Chinese labor organizer, Meng Zhu. Here's my conversation now with Joey Ayub on the current situation in Palestine. Thank you. So my name is Joey Ayoub. I'm a Palestinian Lebanese activist, writer, researcher, and I currently live in Switzerland. We should start, I think, just by setting the table uh, in a way that you can, as factual as you'd like before we get into the more abstract. So you, you see all these sort of very sensationalist images and it just bombards you. But what's actually going on on the ground? What sort of, what if we looked at this as the campaign in the military sense? Uh, from Israel, what are they actually doing on the ground in Palestine at the moment um, that has uh, led to, I think, unprecedented international outrage? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a number of things. Uh, I mean, the very nature of a military occupation is that it can be very difficult for you to actually start saying, well, this is when the violence started, because in many ways it never really ended, it never stops in the first place. Um, more recently, I suppose, I mean, the, the <clears throat> two or I guess three main things that have happened are the still planned forced evictions, which is a, you know, sanitized way of saying ethnic cleansing of Palestinian families that live in, in Jerusalem's Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. Uh, and the other thing, of course, were the attacks by the Israeli police on Al-Aqsa Mosque during Ramadan, which, you know, as you might imagine, is pretty provocative. And that in itself had followed basically like two weeks of Israeli police, uh, you know, I guessing worshippers uh, across the old city of, of Jerusalem. 
Uh, and the other thing which uh, happened around the same time, uh, actually the same day, was what the Israelis call Jerusalem Day, which for them is the unification of Jerusalem. For pretty much everyone else on the planet, it's the occupation of East Jerusalem after the 1967 war, the Six Day War. Uh, and during on that day, pretty notoriously by now, uh, although the, I think this time we've got more photogenic horrors than before, um, you would have these uh, settlers, uh, usually young Orthodox youth extremists, I just call them Jewish supremacists, that would kind of walk through Arab neighborhoods chanting death to Arabs, uh, you know, chanting Kahanists uh, revenge songs. Amir Kahane was pretty much a Jewish uh, supremacist, the founder of the Jewish Defense League. If you look at their flags, it's pretty scary. And we had these images and videotapes that I think the Israelis pretty much like, um, uh, I don't know what's the word, but they didn't seem to really be very smart in terms of understanding how, the, how bad this looks. And so as a result, um, that, that's even before the bombing of Gaza, that's before the, you know, the bombing of Gaza, uh, you had an, a lot of international outrage. This led to, at some point, if I remember the dates correctly, Hamas basically saying at some point, if, you, if the Israeli forces don't leave Al-Aqsa Mosque, the, the courtyard, you know, that area, by something like 6 p.m., they would start throwing rockets. Uh, Israel ignored that, rockets followed, Israel followed that by bombs, and, you know, this is what we've been seeing so far. And more recently, as in literally as we're talking right now, uh, we're recording this on May the 18th, on Tuesday, you had a mass, you have an ongoing massive strike throughout present-day uh, Israel, so within the, the territories that Palestinians usually call 48, by uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, that are on strike in protest of, uh, in protest against the Israeli uh, government's, uh, well, basically brutality and horrific policies, especially in recent, uh, you know, past week or so. You see some journalism saying, oh, you know, this will be good for, you know, up to a point, this is good for Netanyahu's Likud party, or, you know, this is good or bad for Benny Gantz and so on and so forth. Is this sort of violence ginned up deliberately at the behest of political actors in order to secure things like electoral victories, in order to secure power building with, let's say, a voting bloc like uh, the settler community of, of uh, the settler um, demographic of Israel? Why did this violence happen and who is... And, we're being cynical when we say this, who is benefiting from it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a yes and no. I think it's both at the same time. It, it wasn't planned in the sense that, you know, they they sat behind closed doors and decided this is what we're going to do today or tomorrow. But uh, these policies have been there for some time. The Sheikh Jarrah evictions, quote-unquote evictions, which I'm just referring as ethnic cleansings, uh, have been going on for several years now, uh, the threats, I mean. Uh, you know, it's in the Israeli Supreme Court now. They they postponed the decisions on what to do about that. Uh, I mean, obviously due to international pressure. Um, so it's not entirely just Netanyahu's in Organ sitting behind closed doors and deciding this or that. There are, of course, the generals of the IDF. You have a lot of people within the the, the Knesset, the government, and you know, those uh, those kinds of power dynamics. Uh, I do think it's useful to look at it as structural authoritarianism. Um, I mean, structural Zionism is a bit of a weird term for me, but yes, it is It is a structural authoritarian uh, reality. There, there's really no way of denying it. The recent flare-ups, and I'm, I'm using terms used in the media, I don't actually use, like these terms, uh, partly are due to like miscalculations on the part of the Israelis and the IF, you know, maybe not uh, taking Hamas's threats too seriously, 
maybe thinking that Hamas, you know, wouldn't go that far, you know, because Hamas has, for the most part, uh, you know, quote unquote, kept the peace for a long, a long time now. Um, you know, it, I mean, Hamas and Israel at this point have a sort of a, a symbiotic relationship, I think. I mean, many people won't like me saying that, but I, th I think that's, that's what we're seeing. Uh, as to who it's benefiting, I mean, uh, I guess if you, if you put like this political analysis hat on, it's definitely benefiting the, the extreme right in Israel, which is why, uh, you know, people that are a bit more moderate, people who believe in a two-state solution, you know, whatnot, um, which I'm not saying really is necessarily my position, but I mean, they're objectively more moderate than the, you know, far-right fascists. They don't really have much of a political platform to do much about that. And that is, I mean, overwhelmingly Benjamin Netanyahu's fault. He is the one who, because he does not want to stand trial, because he wants to stay in power, you know, forever. Um, he is the one who, who has invited the Kahanists essentially to join his coalition, or at least he depends on them now. Uh, he may actually also depend on the Islamist party, which is quite an ironic uh, situation going on right now in, in Israeli electoral politics. This is the fourth election they've had. They may have a fifth one if the quote-unquote opposition of, of um, Lieberman and um, Yair Lapid don't, uh, you know, don't form a coalition or a functioning government, then it may go back to the, to the fifth election. Um, so it's really a number of things. I'm actually just scratching the surface here. But that's just, you know, in terms of more recent headline-grabbing stuff. The reason why Palestinians, for the most part, don't really separate between, you know, 48 and 67 or after that, it's really because there's been an ongoing Nakba. That's, that's, that's a new, I mean, it's not a new framing necessarily, but it's a framing that I think has been um, catching on more, more recently. And I think that's partly due to, you know, the rise of intersectional thinking, the rise of decolonial thinking, the, you know, indigenous scholarship, that sort of thing that described North America, you know, the Americas, Australia, New Zealand, what have you, as ongoing genocides rather than just something that happened in the past. Um, those are things that work uh, or that have been applied, I should say, also to the, to the Israeli-Palestinian context. I know you've studied this closely enough to comment on it somewhat as an expert. What, how is media in Israel um, censored or how is it filtered or how is it just through the algorithms that I know you've, you've been researching quite a bit? How do people not know how insane this looks in Israel? Or how, in terms of seeing things like, let's say, some as, as I think a liberal a figure as a John Oliver, you know, who's married to someone from the U.S. Army, is, is saying these are war crimes. Um, you have um, celebrities who always want to be, you know, which way the wind blows, coming out and, and criticizing this. Uh, beyond media figures, which, you know, fuck celebrities, you have these global protests like truly global, like um, on uh, seemingly on the scope and scale of of of, of the Black Lives Matter movement that, that was truly global. How is this not making its way back into Israeli media? What is sort of the filter before we maybe talk about how people are inculcated into Zionism through educational materials? How is this not getting back to Israelis that something is deeply, deeply wrong? Yeah, for the most part, Israeli media kind of falls in line with at least the main narratives of the Israeli government. The, when we speak of left or right within Israeli Jewish politics, left pretty much means like a very broad, um, you know, support of a two-state solution, maybe, maybe more quote-unquote progressive local, quote-unquote local, as in only being citizens of Israel, 
you know, maybe being like nicer towards Palestinians who are citizens of Israel than those on the right. That's pretty much as left as it gets for the most part. Uh, you do have some historically more left-wing parties among Israeli Jews that have been more like, you know, comfortable uh, associating themselves with Palestinians, actually even like having Palestinians in their leadership, that sort of thing. But they have always been a very, very small minority. Um, for the most part, um, Israeli media kind of just falls in line. There are some pretty decent uh, exceptions to this. There's one called Social TV. There's obviously 972 Mag. But for the most part, that that's, they, they kind of just fall in line. And as to why they fall in line, I mean, uh, on the one hand, you do have sometimes military gags. So you do have the military censoring a lot of things. Um, but I think it does really fall back to the, the other question of like, what, what, what do we mean when we speak about Israeli politics? What does that actually mean? Um, and of course, that's a complicated one, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher the response in some ways. But I've, I've done a lot, I've spent a lot of time just going through Israeli textbooks uh, as part of my thesis. For those who don't know, I did my master's thesis on the politics of Hebrew and Yiddish within um, like basically Jewish political imaginary with a focus on Zionism. Lots of fancy academic words there. Um, and one thing that's very obvious, like I, can, I can give the example of the Hebrew textbook that I used when I, because I took one year of Hebrew. Uh, which was a government uh, commissioned one, like one that, that's approved and commissioned by the government, uh, the map is not there. I mean, the map is there, but you don't have a, you don't even have a, those, that two-state solution border, the sanitized one, where you have maybe a bit of Jerusalem that's divided, but then you would have like the West Bank, and then you would have Gaza. I, I, funnily enough, or I don't know if funny is the word, but ironically enough, they do have Gaza because I think they don't want Gaza. But the West Bank uh, wasn't there. There was no border in the West Bank. They would write uh, Hebrew... Uh, What's what's in it in English? Uh, Hebron, Khalil in Arabic, Hebron in, in, in Hebrew, which is in the West Bank. So they would write the word Hebron in Hebrew, of course, uh, but they won't say where Hebron is. So if you don't know anything, then, well, it's the same land as, you know, Tel Aviv or the same land as Jerusalem or Haifa or, you know, all of these cities that Israel just um, attribute, I mean, just consider as part, part of Israeli territory. Um, it, it's very, it, you, you from a very young age, a lot of Israeli academics have also done a lot of good work on this. You're inculcated in a pretty coherent, like internally coherent narrative where the only Arabs, and of course they would really say Palestinian, they would say Arabs, Arabim, because they like, uh, you know, to paraphrase Golda Meir, there's no such thing as a Palestinian. It's sort of that, that kind of mentality where the, the, the entire point is to say that there is no such thing as a native Arab population that, you know, the, the native Arabs are either Palestinians, although not all Palestinians are Arabs, but they tend to ignore that. Um, you know, you know, they can just go back to Jordan. They can just go back to Egypt. They can just go back to Syria or what have you, because that's still part of a significant, that's still part of a pretty significant percentage of the population that actually believe that way, that actually believe that. And so, you know, if that's the audience, then the media is going to follow. So there, there is also a symbiotic relationship going on there. I mean, it, get, it gets to a chicken and egg uh, question at some point. But Israeli media, for the most part, is pretty right-wing, pretty conservative, pretty militarized. I mean, what would you expect if uh, pretty much every single Israeli Jewish citizen, with a tiny exception of those that are called the, the, the refuseniks, you know, Israeli Jews that refuse to serve in the IDF, um, which are a pretty small number, everyone else has served in the IDF. So you have an entire an entire militarized society that uh, then joins the media, then joins politics, then joins what have you, but they still have those troops that they consider brothers and sisters, and it becomes a very easy way of having an in you know an in group and an out group, 
I mean, that's kind of, you know, again, a kind of a all over the place answer, but that's sort of what's happening. That's what's been happening for a long time. You have entire studies, I can think of them, and maybe we can link them in the in the description or something, looking at Israeli textbooks. Uh, people should, I, honestly, you can ignore everything I'm saying, you know, ignore everything I'm saying, ignore anything any Palestinian and Israeli saying, if you want, go and check out those textbooks. They are terrifying. They're utterly terrifying. It's it's what you would do in order to inst install in, in terms of a, a type of, um, I mean, ex definitely extremist, if not over overtly fascistic ideology. It is one that is built on extermination. It's one that is built on erasure. It's very much there for in the textbooks from a very, very young age. So, you know, you do this for several decades. It's not really a surprise of what ends up happening. So um, just to hop out into the present for a moment, there's a general strike going on today um, that I'd like you to talk a bit more about of uh, that I think is an open call of support. So Jewish citizens are invited and please clarify this. Jewish citizens of Israel are invited to participate um, for uh, Israel. Uh, what I, I I'm, I'm quite curious about is why do you see so much hope and potency in this uh, general strike? And what impact do you think this can have in terms of the international movement? So is this something that you see as connecting to the international protests that have occurred so far? Okay, so a number of things. Um, the protests, yes, anyone in theory can join them. They're not going to, you know, but it is a Palestinian dominated protest. And that really matters because... Uh, well, I won't say that, you know, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel or like in Arabic, we would just call them like, you know, so like from the inside or from the 48, 48 territories to to commemorate the Nakba. Um, uh, they're not apolitical. That's not accurate to say, but there has been a growing disconnect from the rest of, of the Palestinians, of a Palestinian like political imagination. Let's put it that way. Uh, and this, in past, uh, you know, the week, couple of weeks, there's been a repoliticization, as you, as, uh, as one might say. And so, yes, right now you have a general strike. It's ongoing as we're speaking. It started like a couple of hours ago, I suppose, in like Jerusalem, um, Haifa, Ramallah, uh, Bethlehem, uh, Sakhnin, Nablus, and other places. Um, you know, in what is uh, legally the state of Israel and the West Bank, for the most part. Um, and it, what matters is that, you know, a lot of the workforce is Palestinian. And so within Israel, I mean, and so this is a way that that of putting pressure, it's a basic, you know, tactic of, you know, that, that's one of the basic uh, tactics behind striking in the first place. As to the in terms of, uh, so I, I would look at it as putting pressure from within and from without, right? I do think that those international protests are extremely important, uh, if only just to show people uh, who are being bombarded or, you know, being forcibly evicted or, you know, ethnically cleansed, as I said, or being just killed in the West Bank. There's, there's at least one Palestinian protester who was shot dead in, in Hebron, uh, like about an hour ago, by the Israeli uh, forces. Uh, so, you know, it could be just a way of showing solidarity, which is really important. But another thing is um, that Israel relies a lot on its public, uh, on its international support, a lot. They have entire ministries dedicated to this. One thing that is particularly important for the, for the Israeli government is the public opinion of, of American Jews. I mean, I wish that was not the case. I don't think it's fair for anyone, especially for American Jews, but that's just the fact that they care about these things. And we saw something pretty extraordinary about, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago or something, or at least I saw the video a couple of weeks ago, I don't know when it was said, of the, I want to say a, a former ambassador of Israel or like a current ambassador of Israel, I forgot, 
but basically saying that Israel needs to focus all its political capital on appealing to evangelical Christians, American evangelical Christians, because they are losing the support of American Jews. And that's been that's been a growing rift, at least in the past couple of decades, I would say. I also it was also part of my thesis because American Jews, for the most part, are at least liberal, if not progressive, definitely more than the national average. Um, and the Israeli government has been pretty awkward at trying to appeal to them, which has not been working. And in the context of Black Lives Matter, in the context of even historically, like just the Jewish role in opposing apartheid, for example, in South Africa, uh, like by, by which I mean like Jewish South Africans, uh, or of course the, the, the role of a of lot of American Jews in the civil rights movement in the US, there's a lot of legacy of being, you know, pro-liberation, anti-apartheid, anti-oppression, all of that, that a lot of, especially younger uh, Jewish American groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, you know, a number of others have been building up on in the past uh, decade or so. I would say especially since 2014 war on, on Gaza, which happens all around, around the same time as the, as the I, I believe, the Ferguson protests. Uh, so a lot of these bonds have been building um, something which governments in general are not good at paying attention to because they don't they only think in terms of you know geopolitics and what happens at the top and that sort of thing. And now I feel it's come back to bite them in the ass. I think that they have no real plan of what to do with this. And so what what do they do when they have no real plan of doing of doing anything about it? They just double down, which is exactly what's happening. That's part of why you you have this pretty extraordinary, as you say, like. Um, like tone deaf um, reaction by the Israeli government on social media, like the Israeli, like the at Israel account, uh, you know, posting, I don't know, 1000 emoji rockets, you know, that sort of thing. Um, or having a before and after, you know, before there was a tower, after there's no tower, you know, as if they're thinking that this is working. It is definitely working with a percentage of, you know, hardcore supporters. But I can I can bet you anything that a lot of people that are sort of on the fence about it, and people who grew up in let's say a Zionist household, who uh, maybe are rebelling against their parents, maybe have you know they they may identify as liberal Zionists because that's the most left wing that they can think right now. But you know they're sort of on the fence about it. They're not entirely sure it might be a good thing. For the most part, and this is really important to highlight, many people. Um, I mean, I want to say many. Jews post 48, post 67, especially, haven't really seen any real alternative, politically speaking, to Zionism. And I think this has been changing. It has been changing, especially in the past decade or so. There's been people, I mean, there have always been anti-Zionist Jews, don't get me wrong. Um, but it's something that's been changing, especially in the past, yeah, I would say past decade or so. And this is very significant. Again, I have to emphasize, this is really significant, but I don't wanna you know, dwell on this too much. It is as important, um, if not a bit less important than the political mobilization of a lot of Palestinians in the diaspora. The reason we have protests everywhere is that Palestinians are everywhere. The reason Palestinians are everywhere is because Israel exiled them or exiled their parents, exiled their grandparents. So, you know, this is not, if you're from the perspective of someone who just wants things to calm down, you know, maybe you're not even that quote unquote radical and you don't care about the rights of return of refugees or what have you, even if even if you don't care about all of this, uh, you wouldn't be doing what the Israeli government is currently doing. But that's how out of touch they are, because for the most part, they've banked on just having the support of a number of states. Of course, they view stuff like the Abraham Accords, as they're called, you know, uh, shaking hands with the, the Emiratis and the Bahrainis and 
Um, so yeah, I mean, that's what they've been banking on. They've been banking on that. They think that what they can do is just get as many allies, quote unquote allies in the region. And maybe those allies will ignore the Palestinian question as it's been called long enough. And, you know, in the meantime, they will create facts on the ground. They, they push for colonization of the West Bank. They push for the settlement communities. You know, a lot of these people are now in their second and third generations. And so you create a lot of political capital by saying that you're defending them, which is exactly what's been happening. And for the most part, mm -hmm. the Israeli opposition, and I'm using opposition, I mean, it is electorally speaking in opposition, um, haven't really had much of a of a answer to this because their only answer was we will dismantle the settlements and the West Bank will be a Palestinian part of the Palestinian state, we'll have a two-state solution and everything will be fine. But when you do this for two, three decades, you create new facts on the ground and at some point it doesn't really work anymore electorally because those people also vote. The settlers vote. So uh, you, um, Leila Al-Shami, uh, other voices uh, have talked about it for... You know, why do you avoid a lot of the Western left um, besides a lot of them being fucking loudmouths and myself included? I've been a loudmouth from time to time and talked over people when I should have shut the fuck up. It's that they that they, they play chess instead of actually considering the moral consequences of geopolitics. So, oh, Syria, this is a useful pawn to use against Israel. Oh, you know, Assad, he's murdered you know, uh, the majority of his country, that doesn't matter because it'll be useful for Israel. Oh, China is useful in, in checking the U.S.'s capitalism. Oh, they're going to genocide all these Muslims who I've never met? Who cares? Because it's useful in my grand game. So there's obviously a lot of fascist or semi-fascist uh, tendencies in loud voices of uh, the left who I would argue are, I would, I think no Passeran is a very useful heuristic <laughs> Um, and also, I think that the, 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 the absence of left voices from those countries uh, in the discussion of a lot of these people tells you all you need to know about them. They're loud, arrogant, solipsistic individuals who the most important thing is just hearing their own voice and maintaining uh, media presence. They're, they, what I would say to all of them is where the fuck were you for all these other conflicts and where the fuck were you when there wasn't a conflict in Palestine? Where were you in building solidarity with Palestinians when it's not just bombs being dropped? So I, I need to talk about this just very quickly and we'll just do two parts. For the leaders on the ground, so let's say like an Assad, could you just, and this will be part one, could you just very briefly explain how they use uh, the Palestinians as an excuse for their own internal authoritarian violence and why we need to have a no passeran, uh, uh, you shall not pass attitude rather than play chess uh, in regards to Palestine and its neighbors. I mean, uh, on some level, it's a very basic, uh, you know, look over there, don't look over here kind of situation. Uh, you know, we are Syria, we are the Syrian regime. Please look at what's happening in, in Palestine. Don't look at what's happening in Syria. Uh, that, you know, that works to a certain extent, it's certainly worked in the past, although not without, you know, opposition, but Assad would just crush the opposition. And if not him, then his father, Hafez Assad. Um, so that's sort of it. I mean, there's no, there's no ingenious method behind it, but there is in the specific case of Syria, even more so than the rest of the, of the regimes, uh, like the Arab ones anyway, uh, you know, Iran does this to a certain extent, but to focus just on the Arab world, 
Um, Syria, you know, one of its mukhabarat, which is like the secret police or intelligence services, one of their branches is called the Palestine branch. Sometimes they would fly the Palestinian flag alongside the Syrian one. Uh, you know, they would uh, say Palestine is part of the Umm al-Arabiya, so like the, the Arabic homeland. All of this has benefited a certain narrative. Uh, the fact that they torture and murder Palestinians in Syria, Palestinian Syrians, of course, doesn't change much. The fact that the, uh, the Golan Heights has been occupied by Israel for like five decades now and Syria hasn't done much to do anything about it. Um, you know, all of these things are, are kind of details in the grand narratives. Everything is part of a purpose. Everything is part of a greater plan. You know, it's like Hezbollah had to basically say like the road to Jerusalem passes through Aleppo. And which, of course, has led to a lot of funny memes of like them getting lost on the map, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, that's 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 authoritarian logic. It's not it needs to be internally co coherent to some extent, but it's it is also pretty flexible. You know, the Emiratis made peace with the Palestinian with <laughs> I wish with the Israeli government. Uh, and they justified this as like, well, now we can, you know, now we stop them from building extra settlements. So they just justified like that. The Egyptian government did the same thing with, with in the time of, of Sadat. The Jordanians do the same thing. The Jordanians still have to say face from time to time because they still want to have some say in what's happening in Palestine, of course. And they sometimes have to say face, or sometimes they might, you know, speak to the Israeli ambassador, or they might, you know, say, well, we will do this or that, and usually don't do don't follow through. And so a lot of this works on a like on a local level, but not long term. Uh, one thing that really bothers me a lot when, when a lot of, especially Westerners, yes, talk about the Arab world, of course, is that they assume that, okay, I'm going to caricaturize and just, you know, paraphrase someone like Thomas Friedman, who's a bit of an extreme at this point, but he has been pretty indicative of what would just be called like mainstream discourse. And they, these people, for the most part, they don't really care whether the Arabs on the streets are part of a democratic system or not. It's either they are, you know, during the Arab Spring, this is what happened. We have um, people taking to the streets, demanding democratic reforms, some of them calling for, you know, Shabbat, Scott, uh, Yurida Scott and Nizam, like the people who want the downfall of the regime. Others like in Bahrain, having a pretty mild, um, you know, reformist uh, agenda on the streets. But regardless, they were crushed. In Bahrain, they were crushed with Saudi tanks. In Syria, obviously, they were crushed with for Syrian tanks, and then the Russians and the Iranians joined in with a lot of these militias like Hezbollah. And it's either we manage to do democracy in like six weeks, you know, we either get the Tunisian uh, scenario where they manage more or less to have a democracy after some time, or then, you know, everything has to be turned from Arab Spring to Arab Winter. As if, you know, if you look at the French Revolution, as if they got the revolution in a few weeks or in a few years even. It took them decades, you know, and there was Napoleon in between. Um, all of these narratives of, of us not being good at democracy has always served authoritarian structures. It served the Israeli government. It served the Arab regimes, including the quote-unquote anti-imperialist ones like Syria. It has served Hezbollah. It has served the Iranian regimes, has even served the Turks, has even served the West. You have this marriage of convenience at this point, that this is a status quo that works because at least if we pacify enough people, we can do business, as we can see in Bahrain. You know, we've pacified, quote unquote, pacified, which means, you know, basically crushed the uprising there. Well, we can continue doing business with Bahrain now. That's sort of the mentality. I'm, I'm telling you from now, if Bashar al-Assad finds a way to normalize things with the West, although at this point, I think the figure 
won't work by the regime might, if they get rid of Bashar Assad himself, then the regime might be tolerated by the West. Then you will have business as usual, because a lot of Western governments, you know, I'm not going to get too much into this, but a lot of Western governments, their top priority right now is figuring out how to deport Syrian refugees, as Denmark has been trying to do. So anyway, that, yeah. that's on that front. The, what I think would be useful to talk about is for Palestinian solidarity, it's there's a continuum between left and right. Within the this global movement, there have been people discussing you know, things like it really hurts to see, let's say, a photo of Saddam or a picture of Assad or to see individuals like the Gray Zone being supported uh, in Palestine when they've done everything in their power to send as many uh, Uyghur Muslims to concentration camps or at least aid and abet that system that sends Uyghur Muslims to concentration camps, that sends Syrians to their death. They have acted as useful idiots for regimes trying to liquidate uh, opposition that it finds too annoying or that it can't absorb. Could you talk a bit about this left-right continuum of Palestinian solidarity and how you interact with it as someone who's had to experience exile from Lebanon due to Hezbollah as someone who's worked very intimately with Syrians who've had to flee the genocidal regime of Assad. What have your thoughts been on this moment and and how do you deal with this question of left-right Palestinian solidarity? There is a concept of like Palestine as metaphor, right? And um, not that there's no real Palestine, of course, but there is, of course, in international politics, all of these are battles of ideas. And you would have a situation like, for example, if you think of Northern Ireland, where you have Republicans that fly the Palestinian flags and unionists that fly the Israeli flags, this doesn't have much to do with Israel-Palestine. This has to do with unionist versus Republican politics in Ireland, Northern Ireland, UK, right? Um, You have a bit of this a bit all around the world. The, The nature of the Palestinian question has been that because it's been seven decades now, seven plus decades now, you've had a lot of people all around the world that manage, and, you know, I'm gonna oversimplify because if you go to Turkey, it's one thing. If you go to Germany, it's another thing. If you go to France, it's another thing. Or America, it's another thing. And they've had to basically deal with the question of the, you know, the Palestinian question, as I'm calling it, um, via their own immediate political priorities. Like an obvious example is the German state's pretty much unconditional support for the Israeli state largely due to German, obviously, the Holocaust, due to German complicity, I mean, German enacting the Holocaust. And there's always, there's been this very weird phenomenon within Germany of basically don't say anything about Israel because then the Holocaust will be brought up. Uh, This is one thing. The other thing, you know, on Turkey, which, you know, very different contexts, then you have something different. You have either those that appeal to a neo-Ottomanist nostalgia you know those were our lands and we need to stand in solidarity with them or what have you but not because they want democratic reforms in in israel palestine they have a different idea they have a different dream for what you know the the area should be like and you will have all of these convergence of different forces different um you know political subjectivities you will have like sectarian uh you know shias in the fucking i don't know britain uh, mixing up with sectarian Sunnis and people who are pro-Turkey, mixing up with people who are pro-Iran, or you know, going to different marches and using uh, the pro- the Palestinian cause to for the, to kind of like for their own purposes. The overwhelming majority of 
the anti-Semitic stuff that we've the horrific shit that we've been seeing, like actual Jews being attacked. And I think in Toronto there was one, and I think in London there was these people driving in their cars with Palestinian flags and saying horrifically anti-Semitic shit. I can guarantee you that the majority of them are not Palestinians. Uh, the Palestinian cause is easily hijacked by a lot of people that I think are reproducing the same kind of authoritarian logic as the one that they claim to be opposed. And their anti-Zionism can absolutely be anti-Semitic. Of course, being anti-Zionist does not mean being anti-Semitic. And we have to repeat that because the Israeli government loves to always say that. But it doesn't mean that the opposite is always right. You know, there are forms of anti-Zionism that are absolutely anti-Semitic. And you have people who will only care about what Israel does and not give any shit about what happens anywhere else. So these things are happening. They're happening in parallel with one another. Sometimes they cross over in the age of social media, which is especially something I'm really concerned by. All of these things sort of collapse into one another, right? You can have one single person saying one horrible thing in this one city, in this one, you know, one part of the globe. And what that person said can get as much attention as Israel bombing Gaza for six straight hours overnight. That's just the nature of the of the the media scape that we live in. So like that, that's sort of that. But I also wanted to read too because I forgot to say it before, of like why there is this obsessive support with you know Israel in certain quarters. Part of it, I guess, I can paraphrase. I forgot her name now, but she's this American professor of Yiddish studies of all things, which is a bit ironic given the legacy of, of Yiddish internationalists, but let's put that aside for a sec. Um, basically saying that, you know, they're coming up with new terms now, like intersectionality and decolonial, and she was complaining about that within academia. And she's saying like, why do they focus on Israel? Israel is this tiny thing on the map. You can barely find it on the map. And this is something that's very useful because it's very easy to just look at the map and say well you know the arab world is so massive israel is so tiny so why would should we focus on israel let's focus on the big bits first and this is something that benefits israel it also feeds into israel's uh, narrative or like the israeli government's narrative of being this small western outpost in the middle east of being you know greening the desert of civilizing and modernizing the land of being settlers yeah, basically being settlers, like the, the same kind of logic of, you know, a manifest destiny in America, but, you know, with an Israeli twist to it, having the, the idea of the Sabra, meaning the, the Sabra is the name of a cactus that, who, that grows in the desert, being the name of like Israeli Jews that are born in the land, uh, as opposed to Jews that are not born in the land. And they have these hierarchies. When you do Aliyah, which is the, you know, migrating to Israel, Aliyah literally means ascent. You're going up, you're being upgraded. This is something that that is very much in very much inbuilt, and what comes with that, which goes back to my own research, is it is it very like horrific actually sometimes hatred of anything that goes back to diaspora Jewish legacies. That's why Yiddish was repressed. That's why Ladino is dying out. You know, a number of things that any any city that had a thriving Jewish community prior to the Holocaust. As if the Holocaust, well, obviously destroyed most of that uh, civilization, most of that, uh, you know, uh, heritage. As if then, well, that happened, so we're not going to look at it anymore. There's been a pretty concerted effort post-1948, like post the establishment of the State of Israel, which of course came right like a few years after the Holocaust ended and after the end of the Second World War, to just erase everything that happened before and create everything anew. The thing is that when you want to create everything anew, you're going to borrow from existing things. 
And so if you're trying to establish a settler co colony, you're going to use settler, uh, you know, colonialist language and settler colonial uh, thinking and metaphors of, you know, again, all of those things I just listed. Obviously, within, I think, the image of the settler of the sort of cowboy, and, and you've talked about this before, a lot of people have talked about this before, sort of the the metaphor was uh, of sort of Yiddish-speaking, Eastern European Jews, they're, they're almost, and this is painting with sort of a, a hazy brush, but to give you sort of the emotive uh, uh, imagery or um, uh, the emotive aesthetics, effeminate, weak, um, easily exploited, easy to be dominated, whereas the settler was the masculine, colonizing, explorer, sort of spirit of adventure. In, in this way, have you heard very, particularly because I know your familiarity with Yiddish, are, are there very intense debates within uh, the larger diaspora community of the violence that Israel has done to Judaism in terms of how it's policed Yiddish, how it's tried to produce a hegemony of Judaism that um, that Israel says, you know, we are the state of, of Judaism, we are the, the representation of Jewishness. Is, is there a good sense or a good body of scholarly work that looks at how Israel has committed ideological violence against all these other forms of Judaism that it did not see useful to its project of settler colonialism? Oh, yeah, there's, there's a lot. I mean, that, that's part of, I think that's part of why we have this uh, ease now of, of thinking about this a bit more elaborately than we might have a few decades ago. But there's a lot of like, even if you only stick to the, the like Israeli Jews, for example, Israeli Jewish citizens, of how there is the, these hierarchies. You know, my friend Maya, Maya Skolny, I've interviewed her on my podcast on, you know, the Fire These Times, plugging myself here. Um, a few days ago, it came out a few days ago, she grew up in a Zionist household before rejecting it. And she described it as Ashkenaz-normative, you know, referring to the uh, Ashkenazim, uh, who are the Jews of largely Eastern European descent, who are in this in this higher, higher new hierarchy, let's say, kind of the whites in in that situation. So below them, you have, I'm, okay, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but below them you have people who are Mizrahis. You know, people Mizrah just means the East, so this already tells you a lot. Uh, and then below them you have the Ethiopian Jews, and then below those, of course, you have the Palestinians. Uh, you have these hierarchies that were built because fundamentally Israel was founded by, uh, you know, Europeans. Uh, it, it's, it's a European colonial project. The fact that later on you have uh, Jews from the Arab world and Arab Jews that would end up being called Mizrahis, um, that of course now are the majority of Israeli Jews, which complicates the picture. And I think we need to, to, to recognize that. It definitely complicates the picture. Um, you know, and then the, also the Ethiopian Jews who migrated and then the Russians in the 90s and so on. There has been, especially in recent years, a lot of talk of reclaiming a diasporous Jewish identity uh, without being ashamed of it, uh, which is not easy. You know, you have to really empathize and even sympathize with people who are in that position. Because if, the, if you are in a, in a you know, I, I've spoken to many Jewish friends who basically say the same thing on this. If you are in a situation where your family was exterminated like two generations ago, you know, two, three generations ago, and you're here saying, well, we need to treasure what came before that, you know, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do. As time has passed and, you know, a lot of that generation is, of course, now pretty old, um, younger, uh, younger generations are trying to build something new. 
Now they're building something new and a new reality. So you have people that they might still call themselves Zionists. They, you know, they may say they may call themselves liberal Zionists. I think few, very few people call themselves left-wing Zionists at this point due to everything that's been happening. But they exist. They exist. But what they mean is kind of they just inherited this from their families, if you see what I mean. And a lot of people will need some time to sort of wrestle with that. And I think there are people who will call themselves that who are willing to talk. And I've been in situations and I've spoken to people uh, when I was living in London, especially who kind of identified uh, like Jews, British Jews who identified as Zionists. But the more you spoke to them, the more it kind of felt that, well, not really, but it just hasn't been a word to replace whatever the anti-Zionist bit it, because anti-Zionist for many, uh, well, Western Jews especially, can feel a bit uncomfortable, you know, because if your entire family is Zionist, then it can be a bit uncomfortable to say that you're anti-family, like you're anti your own relatives, you're anti-community, you know, the people that you meet in synagogue, you know, that sort of thing. I don't want to speak too much about this because I'm not Jewish, but this is the, like this is, you know, countless testimonies of people saying the same thing, including personal friends. But, you know, a lot of these have just written in like websites like Jewish Currents is one that I can think of. Uh, 972 Mag has published some of them, even some mainstream Israeli ones like Haaretz sometimes publishes these things. So it's not really a surprise. It's not really anything new, I think, or anything uh, shocking. But it would be to many people who are brought up in specific environments. There is a reason why the Israeli government and a lot of Western NGOs, um, you know, usually Jewish American conservative NGOs or uh, evangelical Christian conservative NGOs, increasingly so actually, much more than the Jewish ones, you know, they will have these birthrights, you know, they will send people, you know, a, if you're a Jewish kid from New York, uh, you can get a, an all expense pace travel trip to, you know, um, Israel, Palestine. They will, they will show you some Bedouins. You might exchange a bit of tea with them. And then they tell you these are the only Arabs that exist. <laughs> they, won't go, they won't show you the West Bank. They, of course, won't show you Gaza. You know, you won't go to the occupied territories. You know, any of that. You, 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 you're, you grew up in a very sanitized version of the world. And if that's the environment you grew up in, pro-Palestine activism can look scary. It can just look as like these people want to throw off in the sea, throw us in the sea, which is exactly what the Israeli government says. You know, so there is some work to be done there on, especially in the diaspora. Among Israeli Jews is more difficult, I think, due to the politics of Israel, but especially with the diaspora. Um, and I should say even the term diaspora is a bit problematic, but I'm just using a term that's usually used. Uh, because, I mean, it implies that you're not really, you know, that you're actually from Israel, you're not from where you are, which a lot of uh, American Jews would, of course, not be comfortable with, just to name the biggest group uh, outside of Israel. Um, and, you know, there are some, there is some work to be done there. I'm not saying everyone needs to have the patience for this or the tolerance for this, but there's definitely some work to be done there. For the most part, I think uh, Jewish activists themselves have been doing that work, and I think obviously that's most effective. But there's quite a lot of collaboration that can be done and that we that is being done among especially in the us we're seeing a lot of you know intersection because that's where intersectionality is sort of becoming more and more um normalized i guess one might say between jewish americans and black americans and you know palestinian americans and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and this 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 is actually part of why there's been this this shift of narratives and like seven years ago you would almost not see any palestinian on cnn or msnbc or you know those websites, sorry, those media outlets. And now it's pretty common. I mean, I'm, I'm among those that, you know, when I see something 
uh, that's a relative positive change, I will, I, will, I will cite it, and that's one of them. Again, to turn to Palestine's neighbors, within contemporary history, how have governments that historically have used incredible amounts of violence to suppress or destroy demands for democracy, greater political freedoms, or more equitable uh, economies, how has Palestine appeared in the revolutionary imagination of movements like we, we might say the Arab Spring? And then within things like media, government propaganda, or censorship, how do Arab governments attempt to um, turn Palestine into something that it can use to manipulate and maintain uh, popular support or to present a non-revolutionary vision of what a free Palestine would mean? Um, I mean, Palestine historically, you know, has been this quintessential Arab cause um, due to just historical conjunctures, you know, 48, the war of 48 and the war of 67, especially, I think, uh, which was this very quick and pretty overwhelming loss in six days, of course, a six day war. Um, and the fact that it has the centrality or it has had the centrality for a long time is a bit of a double edged sword. So on the one hand, it can unify lots of people, of course. But on the other hand, it can, uh, you know, alienate other people. If you're someone who prioritizes pan-Arabism, then you're definitely going to throw quite a lot of Kurds under the bus, if you see what I mean, uh, or Armenians for that matter, or, you know, Jews for that matter. Like if you're someone who who believes in a decolonial, uh, quote unquote, Middle East and where everyone is, you know, has equal rights under what 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 kind of construction you want to um, you want to believe in or what kind of, you know, a state or whatnot, whatever then of course you will have to engage with all of these multiple histories and Palestinians for the most part have been much better at doing this than, than non-Palestinians to be honest. But to go back to your question, um, the, a lot of the times you would have like during the Arab Spring, you'd have people waving their national flags alongside the Palestinian flag. Um, in most countries except maybe Lebanon, due to the specifically anti-Palestinian xenophobia that exists in Lebanon, due to Lebanon's specific history, uh, you know, which I talk about in other in other contexts, uh, it's not uncommon to just see the Palestinian flag being waved. And that's very distinctive than the Palestinian flags being waved in Western cities. In Western cities, it can be Palestinians themselves doing so, of course, and it can be people genuinely uh, standing in solidarity and wanting to express that. But it can also be a manifestation of more like local politics, you know, which I mentioned before, so I won't get into again. Um, so that like on the Arab Spring, in terms of Arab governments, I mean, what's interesting is that in the past, I would say since the Arab Spring or so, uh, 2011, so the past decade or so, there's been more of an open or like relatively open admittance by these Arab regimes, like the Bahraini one, the Saudi one, the Emirati one, the Egyptian one has already normalized a long time ago of basically just saying, you know, like basically we don't care anymore. Like whatever fig leaf they might, they may have, you know, whatever, lip service they may have paid before for the Palestinian cause, they, they might still put statements here and there, but these statements are a bit more moderated now. And so the only regime really not doing that, because it doesn't really benefit it to do this, is the Syrian one, due to the specific uh, history of the past decade. So now we're in a very uh, uncomfortable position, although it's not a position or like uncomfortable reality, Although it's not one that cannot be overcome, it definitely can. And I think a lot of Palestinians and Syrians 
are like actively trying to 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 fix it of like almost like you have two different timelines you have the syrian one and you have the palestinian one just to kind of focus in on these two which in itself erases palestinian syrians like automatically erases their their lived experiences but if you follow that uh, those parallels and kind of don't see the intersection between these two uh, worlds then it's very easy to just say well you're either with one camp on the other the Israelis, the Israeli government is obviously against the Syrian government, at least superficially. In, in reality, they're actually fine with the situation as it is, as long as it doesn't lead to, you know, genuine democratic reform as you did in Egypt. And then you might have some president like Mohammed Morsi, who is very anti-Israel. Israel doesn't really want a situation like that. So it benefits, it goes back to my initial point that it benefits all of these authoritarian regimes you know, to pay lip service maybe to the Palestinian cause from time to time, although this, as I said, has been decreasing in the past decade or so, because they kind of um, went more inwards or they've reshaped geopolitical priorities or what have you, as long as it doesn't get followed with any kind of genuine democratic reforms. Joey, can I can I add to that? Because I, I really am interested in this. For, so, and it also means that Hezbollah will, would can advocate for Palestinian freedom while remaining highly undemocratic. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Like you can just call for a cause because it's over there. As long as you say that it's over there, like the Palestinian cause is in historic Palestine. The Palestinian cause yeah. for these authoritarian regimes, I mean, is not in Lebanon. It's not in Syria. It's not anywhere else that the Palestinian diaspora and refugees would exist, which, of course, conveniently omits any kind of actual democratic Right. Uh, aspirations that they would have to otherwise reckon with. There's no such thing as a Gini coefficient for like violence, but I have to look at something like Israel that uses absurdly disproportionate violence and say to myself, there must be a relationship here to how ridiculous, anti-democratic, and um, based on principles violently opposed to democracy this is in relation to the violence they use. The 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 level of violence is directly proportional to the illegitimacy of of a government. So within Israel, to restate the questions, how do you see this violence reflecting on the illegitimacy of its claims to uh, governance or its claims to uh, be a functioning democracy? And then how do you see Palestine as useful to countries like the U.S., the U.K., and so on, in allowing a distraction, but also sort of as, I think this is Zygmunt Bauman, a laboratory of violence that we can then, well, I'll, I'll separate that, but how do, you see, how do you see this violence commenting on Israeli democracy? And then how do you see states using Palestine as sort of a justification both for the violence within themselves? Well... When I want to be a bit controversial, I compare the Israeli state to the Iranian state. And the reason why I do is not because this is any kind of good comparison, it's not. But Iran also calls itself a democracy. You know, it's a theocracy, but they, they have elections. But these elections are, of course, pre-selected. The Syrian government uh, says that they have elections. There is an upcoming election and the Assad regime has an actual electoral campaign to be re-elected, although no one will actually be able, of course, to actually run. So calling something a democracy or calling something, um, yeah, that word does not make it so. In Israel, there is a democracy for citizens. It's really that simple. So if you are not a citizen, mm -hmm. yeah. you're not part of that democracy. 
Um, now, that's kind of true a bit everywhere, of course, but what's the, spe the specificity of Israel is that Israel is military occupy occupying militarily roughly half of the population that lives in the territory under which it con that, that it controls. And so you, people in Gaza cannot obviously vote in the Israeli elections. People in the West Bank, of course, cannot vote in the Israeli elections. And so their fate is being determined by other people that rule over them. There's a word for this. It's called apartheid. That's kind of it by definition. Um, you have these multi-tiered systems that, that, of course, benefits Jewish citizens of the state over Arab citizens of the state. So I'm not even talking about Palestinians in the West Bank or in Gaza. I'm speaking about Palestinian citizens of Israel, Palestinians of 48. Um, that discriminates at the legal level. Um, you have these multiple mechanisms that prevent any kind of actual democracy, let's put it that way. And so whether it's a democracy or not, I was like, sure, it's a democracy, but it's not a very meaningful one. It's a democracy in the most shallow, in the sense of like the Athenians had the democracy, but women couldn't vote, um, poor people couldn't vote, and slaves couldn't vote. I mean, sure, that's a democracy as well. And then it's about, well, who counts as the people? You know, like that, then that's the debate. And the Israelis, of course, don't want to include everyone else as the people. But this also ties into the other question of like, why is there this disproportionate response? And I think this goes back to the decades-long dehumanization of Palestinians. Palestinians are not viewed as humans. They're just not. They all of the, um, go back to those textbooks that I mentioned. The only the only Arabs you don't even have Palestinians. The only Arabs are maybe the good ones, like the Egyptians and the Jordanians, because they've made peace deals with us. Uh, but even then, we don't really talk about them. There's no, you don't, I mean, okay, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but for the most part, Arabs aren't real in their narrative. Or well, if they are, they're just, you know, maybe Arab Jews, we will include them. But as long as you prioritize the Jewishness of them, then, you know, you might accept that they have also this Arab heritage. But you say that only belongs in the past and we can accept and discuss it as long as it's the past thing, as long as we don't talk about this as something that can exist in the present. And that's, of course, something that Ella Shahat uh, studies a lot. She has an entire book basically called On the Arab Jew. She's herself uh, from an Arab Jewish background. Um, so the disproportionate response is that it's it's the response of a militarized, hyper militarized society where almost every single citizen has served in the IDF or as part of the IDF or as part of the reservists of the IDF, where you have an in-group and an out-group. And so you have a single Israeli that is killed. For every single Israeli that is killed, and usually it's a soldier, just statistically speaking, you will have a disproportionate impact on Palestinians. For the most part, it's almost always 10 to 1. That's extraordinary. It's almost always 10 to 1. 10 Palestinians killed for almost one Israeli, for, for one Israeli on average. So Palestinians, you know, in that situation, they don't have an army, they have no navy, there's no, they don't have, they don't have tanks, they don't have, even have a fucking airport because Israel bombed it two, two, 20 years ago, um, and they have to face off a actual military superpower, or at least a regional power that is almost unconditionally backed by military superpowers. If you have that, then you will, it's normal, quote unquote, it's at least expected to have this massive disproportionate uh, violence on one side rather than the other. So I see Palestine, at least through an abolitionist framework, as the sort of the litmus test of what it would take to sort of get rid of prisons. Like I see it, and this is a gross oversimplification, but if you can free Palestine, you can free everyone. Um, because it's for, as since post 
48, my understanding is basically it's been allowed to just be this, like a Chile Mbembe who's received a lot of flack for speaking up in Germany, which has its own very peculiar politics about Israel uh, for obvious reasons. But um, that it's it's basically like a Bauman or a Mbembe have talked about. It's this laboratory. It's just this sort of open-air place where you can experiment on all these subjects, not only in terms of carceral technologies of violence, but in terms of what a government can literally do to people. Uh, Joy James, who I think is more honest about this than most individuals, has talked about the state uses violence because it's utilitarian. If it wasn't effective, uh, it the state wouldn't use violence. At the same time, when I look at Palestine, I don't see violence as a way that freedom will be achieved. And I'm wondering just through an abolitionist framework or in terms of uh, what you see is actually being effective at chipping away at this um, government technology of violence and ethnic cleansing that Israel has. If, if we can't fight violence with violence or in order to go through the state and abolish these carceral institutions, violence is, is ultimately going to be ineffective. What is effective? Uh, Israel basically uses Gaza as a laboratory, and they use the West Bank as a, as a laboratory. And, you know, it's it's barely a metaphor at this point. Uh, the 2014 war was followed by this arms expo, I think, in Tel Aviv, uh, where they, you know, they advertised the weapons that were battle tested, because that's how, you, that's how you advertise them. Now, you know, it's working. The Russians do the same thing. They've done the same thing in Syria as well. So in many ways, this is, a, a, you know, a, a state domination thing. So, okay, that's on the laboratory bit. In terms of violence, Again, violence is, is a very, um, the term is very um, limiting in many ways. It can say a lot and it, it also cannot say much. I mean, you know, a rocket that's, that's thrown from Gaza is obviously an act of violence, but it's an act of violence in a very specific circumstance that if that specific circumstance wasn't there, the context would be different. You know, uh, very simple. I am obviously anti-Hamas. I hate, I hate them. As, I, I cannot describe them. How much, I cannot describe how much I hate them. I have friends from Gaza that left because they just couldn't live there. Of course, they left because of the siege, not because anything else. But Hamas's authoritarianism wasn't helping. You know, uh, women were not allowed to be who they were. You know, a number of things. I won't get into it too much because I think that's an entire episode in itself. But in that context, violence is 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 more. Okay, yes. Yeah, so let's go back to I guess. Wait, let me think about this. Um, it's not that it's not an act of violence, but just proportionally speaking, the, the, the impact is just so minuscule in comparison that for me, it, the la language sort of uses its purpose if we just describe all of this as violence, if you see what I mean. That being said, there, it's just a fact that today's strike that is ongoing, um, the resistance in the West Bank, the resistance by Palestinians within the borders of what is legally the state of Israel, so 48, as, as many of us would say, um, has been much, much more effective than Hamas's rockets. Like, I think I think this should just be said as objectively. Because on the one hand, Hamas's rockets, again, I'm not going to get into it too much because it's very difficult. Um, and I'm not going to support or not support. That's that's kind of the wrong framework for me. I would, right. just, I would just ask people to understand. Not understand Hamas. You don't have to. You can hate them as much as you want. It doesn't matter. Understand why there are people who are desperate enough to live in a situation like Gaza, like the, the Gaza Strip, that would, if not support them, at least tolerate them. Where are the alternatives? What's happening to the alternatives? Because the only alternatives right now is the PA, the Palestinian Authority, who are essentially collaborators. 
You have on the on the one hand you have the collaborators. On the one hand you have those that sometimes collaborate, of course, especially under the table. I'm speaking about Hamas, but you know, in terms of political rhetoric, don't, and they are pretty anti-Israel in terms of political rhetoric. One of them managed to stop the 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 harming of Al-Aqsa because they, you know, when they put that that ultimatum, the other one hasn't done anything. Mahmoud Abbas is nowhere to be found. If that's the situation, then you have some people who will choose the lesser evil because, like, what else can they do? And that's even in a context where elections aren't even allowed to happen in the first place. Hamas won the last elections, and we saw how that turned out. So you have all of these things. Palestinians are asked to do democracy in a situation where they are military militarily occupied. And as far as I can tell, no one has managed to do so in history, or at least not for long enough. In Syria, we had a lot of democratic experiments with the local councils, the you know the 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 local. Oh, I forgot in English. The revolutionary committees, you know, organizing committees and so on, and they they practiced democracy that was democracy, but it couldn't last very long, could it? I mean, they were being bombed all the time. Their leaders were being tortured and murdered, and ordinary people, you know, at some point it just doesn't work anymore. So I just find it very rich. Usually, of course, not coming from you, but usually, when people talk about violence or when people talk about the rockets or whatnot, when it's not contextualized in what's actually happening. You can still not like them. I don't. I don't enjoy seeing random Israeli kids running through to shelters. They they didn't do anything. You know, I have nothing. It's nothing personal in that sense. It's nothing. There's no us in them in that sense. But you know, at some point it gets to the political level, and I think Hamas serves a certain function that if we are opposed to that function, which I am, we need to remove that function. If you see what I mean, we need to remove the raison d'être of Hamas. No blockade of Gaza, no siege of Gaza, no occupation of the West Bank, especially, no Hamas. Like they don't have any, they don't have any any effective social programs. They do have the basic ones, you know, the ministries, the health ministries, or all of that. But that's good enough in a war situation, maybe. But in a peace situation, it won't be good enough, not long enough. Allow peace for some time, and alternatives will grow naturally. It is the work of a cynic, i.e., you know, the international community, as it's called, of looking at this as as a conflict between peoples rather than a conflict right. where you have a, an occupied and an occupier, because then that benefits the people who are doing the occupation. It's a self-serving narrative. What connections do you see between Palestine and prison abolition, and why there is a very strong relationship between them? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think, I mean, if we go back to Palestine as metaphor, this is where it can be a useful one, right? I mean, as I said, it's a double-edged sword, so it can be used for the wrong reasons as well. But in this case, it can be used for, for the right one. I mean, I can mention, you know, Syrian friends like uh, Wafal Mustafa, you know, I've interviewed her. Her father is um, um, Ali Mustafa, who, was for, who has been forcibly disappeared by the Assad regime for years now. She was named after a Palestinian outlet, for example. You have a lot of these um, of these inherited, as in we literally inherit them from, from, from previous generations, of the Palestinian struggle, and it's part of this popular imagination. I think the useful thing to do, because that's just a reality, so we can use it for good or for bad, is what a lot of you know people, Palestinians I know, are doing. Mariam Barghouti or Sumayyad, who edited the uh, Palestine, a socialist introduction, whatever it's whatever it's called. Uh, so many other people, again, who work at 972 or who work at, at other publications, uh, they, they've just been doing this for longer anyway. So I would just point towards that. I would point to people who who 
uh, inherently have this internationalist by default because they live everywhere because our lived experiences is like i'm in fucking switzerland and my friends are in australia and america and latin america and europe and the middle east and what have you and we're just everywhere but we have this this uniting united identity usually passed through customs you know cultural heritage music food what have you it's there and the israeli government has tried for a long time to erase that in the same way as you know in the context of prison prison abolitionism one function of prisons is to isolate people within the prisons from the rest of society that's kind of the entire point right and that creates parallel words that create words in which if we focus on the american case you can have an entire political culture as we see in america where prisons are equal one thing you know uh, prisons are you know people have made these analysis of how rape is taken lightly in movies when in the context of prisons for example where just prisons are places where people are allowed to be brutes and that's it and then that reinforces heteronormative patriarchy absolutely it really does all tie in with one another so i will say like i can point to the main people i point to are palestinian abolitionists palestinian feminists mm. you know Nura irakat um maria Barghouti. i had maria on she's a good friend of mine um, other other people, I'm now I'm, I put myself on the spotlight and I forgot names. Uh, they have actively, like, you know, Noura, for example, writes a lot and speaks a lot about, you know, how she's a Palestinian, how she's a refugee and a settler, right? She's a refugee from Palestine, but she's a settler in America. So she, she is uh, centering the experiences of people who were displaced, like, you know, Native Americans in, the, in, that, in that specific case. That's something that is very useful. Uh, Mangan Media interviewed a Palestinian in Australia who also made the exact same point about the linkages between uh, you know, Palestinian subjectivities and and Aboriginal subjectivities. Uh, you know, not everyone is doing this, probably not a majority yet, but it's getting more and more of a common thing. I would I would credit also Black Lives Matter as at least putting more of this in the forefront in the same way as you had like a situation where people were asking themselves, how do we say Black Lives Matter in Palestine, right? So that, let's ask that question. What does Black Lives Matter look mm-hmm. like in Israel and Palestine? You have some that say, well, we have to say Palestinian lives matter, but others, and I'm among them, that sort of push back against this a bit, because if you do that, you're sort of erasing Afro-Palestinians, if you see what I mean. That there's a very specific subjectivity, there's a very specific discrimination that happens to uh, Afro-Palestinians. And there's a pretty significant uh, percentage of the population of Palestinians that are of African or part African descent that would identify as well as Afro-Palestinians that have, of course, Zionism to deal with, but they also have racism to deal with, racism from within sometimes to deal with. If you're a Palestinian queer, a Palestinian LGBT, you know, part of the Palestinian LGBT community, of course, you have Zionism also to deal with, but you also have uh, homophobia or transphobia to deal with within the community and without the community, like outside of the community. If you're a Palestinian woman, you know, a straight woman, or of course, if you're trans as well, then you have uh, misogyny in addition to, to add to that. And you have some Palestinians, of course, who will say things like, you know, when the when liberation happens, we'll start thinking about these things. Or even you have those on the more conservative side who will say things like, well, these are just foreign imposition, like homosexuality, just a Western thing. Hezbollah says that, Nasrallah, that I'm paraphrasing him, you know, in Lebanon. But in Palestine, you'll have, you know, Hamas is the equivalent of that, or other conservative, Islamic Jihad is their call, or some other conservative uh, political movements. They will actually say that. And so if you're a Palestinian uh, queer, uh, you're in between a, a rock and a hard place, if you see what I mean. But most Palestinian queers that I know still prioritize the occupation because I think that they inherently understand 
that as long as you have this militarized reality, and here I'll, I'll paraphrase Yassin Harstalah in a sec, that if you have this militarized reality, it's very difficult to get anything done. If in a war scenario, it's difficult for progressive voices or anti-militaristic voices to sort of gain ground compared to if you had a peace scenario, if you see what I mean. Yassin Harsala has this very interesting analysis of looking at the role of Israeli colonialism and Israeli settler violence in the political imaginary of Arab authoritarians. And he shows how a lot of those same structures that the Israelis put forward in Israel-Palestine, the Israeli government puts put forward, has basically been emulated elsewhere. As, you know, Egypt is one of them, Syria is another, another example. And so they've, they've used this, um, these people used the initial raison d'etre, as it's called in French, like this cause, you know. Uh, yeah, Israel has done this. Israel is colonizing Palestinian lands. Therefore, anything else is justified if we say that we're going to liberate the lands. Don't ask too many questions. We won't tell you how we're liberating the lands, when and how, in what context. You know, all of those are complicated questions. We avoid those. But we will repeat the political, you know, the, the political propaganda that we're going to liberate those lands. But if those lands were liberated, if those land, if there was no military occupation, all of these regimes have nothing left to go for. If you see what I mean, without Hezbollah, without sorry, without the Israeli occupation of southern Lebanon, yeah. you would have had no Hezbollah. They would have had no point to Hezbollah. The entire point of Hezbollah is that they came from an oppressed community, the Shia community of the south in order to defend them against the Israeli occupation at the time when the Lebanese state abandoned the South. That's still to this day what Hezbollah uses, even though the occupation of Southern Lebanon you know, ended 21 years ago. So those narratives came from somewhere. And of course, we can challenge them and we should challenge them. But it's just all the more difficult if they are being challenged in a context where the root causes, the things that caused those narratives to exist in the first place are still there. And especially more difficult if those root causes are becoming more and more violent, which is exactly what's happening now. I am against Zionism. I'm against the state of Israel is currently constructed. I stand with the Palestinians. But I want to go beyond just standing with the Palestinians and, and like live in a world where when we talk about Palestine, it's about its art, its music, its history, its food. Do you have any just general comment, perhaps, uh, for Western listeners on there's a lot of loud voices these loud voices tend to only talk in the terms of politics in a way that i find distasteful and um either profit seeking or attention seeking how can we offer solidarity for palestine without orientalizing it into just the palestinian question that's a very good question um okay so focusing on lived experiences would be one thing Accepting nuances is another thing. Accepting that uh, it doesn't matter whether the person who is being occupied has good politics or not. <laughs> like that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, it, not that it doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter to the question of, of the fact that, you know, the fact that they're being occupied. These are two separate things. As I said, there are people who are occupied that have shitty views. That doesn't change the fact that they are occupied. And I'm not referring to a majority here. I'm just saying that statistically speaking, they will exist. And that, that shouldn't be the main, the main focus. So I guess like the entire point is to just reify a number of principles that are pretty basic. And I, I actually am pretty hostile to attempts to complicate what is already basic. Uh, you know, to quote our friend uh, Einstein, uh, something like, always try and make something as simple as possible, but not simpler. Like, okay, let's simplify, let's understand as much as possible, but not let's, let's not oversimplify it. And the reverse of this is let, let's not pretend it's more complicated than it is. 
So the, the, the importance to go back to like culture and arts and food and stuff, that matters for the, you know, I mean, it matters in itself, but it matters also more specifically because this is something that Israel has been erasing. There is a reason why I tend not to get into it as much because I, I don't have that kind of patience, but there's a lot of, you know, online uh, anger whenever you have stuff like, you know, this is Israeli cuisine and that sort of thing. I don't get into it as much because, you know, there is the legacy of Moroccans and Yemenis and stuff, which is not just about Israel-Palestine, but it is true that a lot of the time, something that should be called a Palestinian cuisine gets called an Israeli cuisine. And if your entire existence is being erased by that same Israeli state, it can seem as a continuation of that very same thing, right? And so it's part of how you, you create different subjectivities. I can cite um, one, I forgot the name of the, the, oh, there's a Palestinian director. I think her first name is Larissa. We'll find the name and add her in the description. Um, who has these series of films in which she's kind of short films in which she's sort of um, an art productions, I believe, thinking of like, what would it look like if you have a Palestine in space? You know, that sort of thing. Because we don't get to participate in history. <laughs> we don't get to participate in science. We don't get to participate in, even though we're part of it, obviously, and you have Palestinian scientists and Palestinian historians, but the way stories are told, you know, the way narratives are told about the evolution of humanity and that sort of thing, a lot of people got excluded from that. And so that's one way of sort of fighting against that in some ways. And there, there, I would, you know, there's a book called Palestine Plus 100. I've reviewed it in the past. Uh, some of the stories I've preferred over others. I mean, that's kind of the nature of, of compilations. But they, they try and think of what would it look like to be in Palestine, in Israel-Palestine in some cases, in 2048, so 100 years after the Nakba. Some of them, I mean, pretty much all of them have pretty dystopian takes, which would be like a critique of mine. But it's one way of thinking about how does it look like, you know, in 30 years or 20 years now, 27 years. And that's one thing. And my, my challenge, if you want, in that review is to say, well, this is a Palestinian subjectivity. This is a Palestinian imaginary of how things might look like in 20 years, 20, 30 years. It looks pretty bleak. So it should be the responsibility of Israeli Jews, Israeli Jewish writers specifically, to provide alternative imaginaries. And it should not just be a matter of Palestinians always having to struggle, always having to provide decolonial theories and decolonial praxis, and always having to basically do everything at once. It should also be the responsibility of the people that have inherited the, uh, you know, these violent structures to do something about it. I always think there is something that could be done. I always believe that a younger generation that's not as ideologically rigid as the previous one, that they can be talked to. And I think that if we don't do that, those that are doing it will do it for us and they will do a much worse job. And I think one of the consequences of that is those very young, extreme uh, Israeli Jewish supremacists that chant death to Arabs while dancing to very shitty 90s Hasidic uh, pop rock and, you know, all of these things, all of these horrific scenes being stored and disconnected from reality. I think that we can talk to, maybe not to them specifically because they're very extreme, but a lot of people who might become them, if you see what I mean, especially as they grow older. Or create a milieu where they, their position is clearly the extreme, where I think as right now within Israel, they're allowed to just exist without 
their politics being questioned, we can push the cultural milieu to a point where they have to reckon with the extremism of their politics within Israel. Exactly. And I will just just repeat maybe that Palestinians, especially intellectuals, but also like just ordinary activists have been saying this for a long time. Mahmoud Arif said this, Edward Said said this, George Habash who was the founder of the PFLP, uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, he said this, uh, you know, basically alluding to a one-state solution, as we might call it, or at least the principle of it, that there should be equality of everyone that lives in the territory, including refugees that have been exiled from those territories, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'm saying isn't really anything new. I'm just repackaging it in a certain lens, maybe a more internationalist lens. But Rassan Kanafani himself has also said, and I should say that the author of Return, Returning to Haifa, uh, he, he wrote that novel. He was assassinated by the Mossad, I think in the 80s in Beirut. Um, he said basically that, that the Palestinian cause is not just an Arab cause, it's a global cause, a cause for the oppressed, you know, against the oppressors, et cetera, et cetera. So going back to the whole Palestine as metaphor thing, which is, you know, a good conclusion to end with, that yes, Palestine is a lived experience, is a real thing with real people going through real things, uh, usually horrible shit. But there's also a lot of joy. There's also a lot of creativity. There's also a lot of potential and links and things that we can create. And there could be a Palestine that is, you know, uh, that is pushing for Black Lives Matter, for Black liberation, for Black power, for one that's pushing for decolonialism, for indigenous rights, you know, one that, you know, it can be used for a lot of things. And I think that we can, uh, we should use it for all of these things, because I think we would honor the cause much better rather than leave it for the, you know, fucking conservatives and Islamists and those guys. That question of why is this so destabilizing to other powers that uh, that exist, I think is one of the crucial ways of interlocking the intersectionality uh, that supporting Palestine, supporting Palestinian freedom offers us. And I think it for those of us who do not tolerate authoritarianism or fascist tendencies on the left, um, asking why certain causes like Palestine can be supported, but other causes that show solidarity with Palestinians in very risky ways, uh, such as uh, Uyghur activists marching in solidarity or the Kashmiri activists painting uh, uh, murals or offering prayer services during Eid that talk about Palestine. Why do we abandon those who did not abandon Palestine? Is what I would ask uh, quite a few people on the Anglo-white, non-Arabic-speaking uh, left. So, uh, Joey, was there is there anything else you would add about how we can show solidarity or further explore this question or anything that you would want to add as a resource for your own media empire? <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I, we went through an entire conversation. We didn't say BDS. So I'll just, I'll just uh, repeat that uh, boycott, divest, and uh, divestment and sanction is an actual legitimate tactic. It's a nonviolent tactic, and it should be supported. People who don't like boycotts, they don't have to. They just need to support the right to boycott. Uh, and there has to be increasingly pressure. Unfortunately, just due to the nature of the geopolitics of it, especially in the U.S. We just saw Biden approve those arm, armaments towards Israel. So clearly the changes at the base isn't being translated at the top, which is expected. It's always the case. So we need to continue pushing on that front and make sure that Israel understand, the Israeli government understand that there has to be a point where they have to recognize that they will not be able to exterminate the indigenous population of historic Palestine, and they will have to contend with that reality. And I think we need to do this on multiple levels, as I, as I said. 
there, have, there is a room for those international pressure and diplomacy and what have you. That's obviously not the space I work in or I live in. It's part of it. But there also have to be pressures from within, which is exactly what we're seeing with the strikes, which is the resistance to, to these forced evictions slash ethnic cleansings, to police brutality, to torture, to all of these things. And there has to be an increasing call for a just solution. And I have to emphasize on just, because, I mean, the Israelis would also use the word just, but I think you know that we don't agree on this. Mm. Um, a, a, a just solution where everyone living in what is Israel, uh, Israel, Palestine, Israel, and the, well, that, honestly, historic Palestine, just to make it easier, have equal rights and are not, uh, yeah, basically end apartheid. <laughs> I'm just saying end apartheid in many ways. And apartheid allow for a return of refugees. It's a it's a right under international law, regardless of how uncomfortable it makes the Israeli uh, Jewish supremacists within Israel Palestine. And I honestly think that's the only way forward, uh, or at least the the most uh, realistic way forward. You can listen to Joey Ayub on the Fire These Times podcast. He also has a wonderful and engaging newsletter. He is a brilliant intersectional abolitionist, solar punk. Probably not a good singer, at least from what I've heard, but pretty talented at everything else. So, Joey, thank you so much for discussing this complicated issue and allowing us to be complex with you. Uh, We stand in solidarity with Palestine. We stand in solidarity with your projects and keep fighting for the freedom of oppressed people in your work. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks for having me.